0: Well, first of all, just good to see, good to see everybody. I know you survived the morning worship service and all is well. Everybody's still okay? All right, well, um, a couple of things. Glad that you're here. I have absolutely enjoyed, been challenged by the last couple of Sunday evenings uh, where we have studied um, world religions. And one of the things that you may not know is uh, many of your pastoral staff have had to take world religions or had the honor, the privilege of taking world religions uh, with Dr. Eby. Uh, they have graduated from his class. Uh, they served, uh, uh, or they were in, at Bethel University, Bethel College back in the day. But something else you, you may not realize that <clears throat> um, Pastor Caleb graduated from Bethel University, Pastor Chuck graduated from Bethel University, Pastor Kate graduated from Bethel University. Uh, One of our uh, ministry assistants, Danielle Gibson graduated from Bethel University. Our director of Upward, Nikita Walter graduated from Bethel University. We have a team um, of... uh, folks that are helping us, helping us with our capital campaign, everybody sitting around that table um, either taught or graduated at, from Bethel University. So uh, Randy um, Beachy is on that team. He used to be uh, on staff at Bethel University. Uh, Jose Antaveros is on that team, graduated from Bethel University. Um, Help me out. Stephanie Powers is on that team, graduated from Bethel University. Lissa Diaz, who currently works at Bethel University. In fact, a lot of the writing that's done, things that are published, she has her hand in. So um, that is huge influence. Of course, you know um, Dr. Mike Holkren and his wife, Judy, um, spent many years at Bethel University and um, served there. Uh, Dr. Holkren was the academic dean for many years, and um, his, his, their son now um, is serving as a vice president there, Sean Holkren, Dr. Holkren. So we have a, a rich um, relationship with Bethel University. Uh, Dr. Croa, um, who is a part of our congregation, she has served at Bethel University for many years. She just transferred to uh, Edwardsburg High School. She's teaching chemistry there, but she had many years <coughs> at Bethel University. Who else? Um, Sean Holkren? Uh, Sean Oltz, yeah. Sean Oltz graduated from Bethel. Amy? Who else? Who, who else has been at Bethel University? Anyone else? That's here? You graduated from... Uh, two semesters, Bethel. That counts. Kristen Chabot, who's a part of our staff, um, was a resident director there. Yeah, well, she'll appreciate you saying that. So what I'm saying to you is there's a rich relationship that we uh, have had. Some of you may remember the first service that we held at Summit Church. This November will be nine years our first service, we had a Sunday morning service. That evening, uh, Bethel University was here with their choir. Now, the significance there was uh, Dr. Jim Bennett, uh, as a former president of Bethel University, was here. Um, he had been; he was the he was the pastor here at First Missionary Church back in the day when the church burnt to the ground uh, a few week a few days before Easter. Um, one one Easter. They, they uh, just a few days before Easter, they uh, woke up to a, the church on fire. And, um, and he was here, and it was just significant that he was here that, that evening. He, he had said, the church will rise again, and on that first Sunday, he was back here when we had our first Sunday here. So I just want you to know um, the, the rich relationship that we have. Now, one thing I'm going to ask you to pray for us um, tomorrow starts a week-long series of meetings. Um, the Missionary Church, so the MLC, which is the uh, Ministry Leaders Council, and the GOC, General Oversight Council, of the Missionary Church, are are in a week-long meeting. And those meetings uh, are taking place at Bethel University this next week. So uh, I'm grateful. We don't have to travel uh, to get there. Um, we... A lot of times would have to travel to get to those meetings all week long, but I get to sleep in my own bed and still participate in those. And I'm I'm eager to to do that. So we will we will be there again. I think it talks about the relationship that is important to us. Um, a few days ago, Bethel University hosted uh, missionary church and pastors, in the, the relationship there. We want to continue to um, to emphasize those things that. Are so important both to the church and to the university. Uh, Dr. Eby uh, and I have had the privilege of serving uh, on some teams together. Uh, most recently, we served on the Constitution Committee together. Uh, you're still serving on that team? Are you, your term? Yeah, and I just termed off as well, so I have no idea what they're going to do now, Yeah. You know. But um, Dr. Eby was there participating when the Constitution Committee submitted a new um, a document on uh, biblical inerrancy or, b- or b- the importance of Scripture, and, and that was verified, affirmed, ratified, voted on, approved uh, this last uh, summer and uh, was a part of that. Dr. Eby, though, let me just share a couple things. He's a veteran uh, missionary. Uh, he's a veteran Bethel professor um he has he has been here he's serving us um, um but he doesn't come to us as just someone who um has studied a bit he has has studied a lot for this and uh, we're grateful fortunate to have him um let me just mentioned a few things, Bachelor of Business Administration, James Madison University, Master of Ministry, Bethel University, a PhD from Trinity International University. Um, he has done his work. Kent his wife, Linda, uh, were missionaries in Russia. Um, he was there in St. Petersburg. Now we, uh, we know Janine Johnston, the missionary that we support. Um, he was there uh, with her, knew her. In fact, uh, interesting story, um, our own Mike and Judy Holkren were there in St. Petersburg uh, when Kent was there, and um, so clearly a, a, a missionary who hasn't just talked about missions and taught missions, but was a missionary. Uh, since um, 2007, he was, uh, has been at Bethel University, um, intercultural studies, focus on theology of mission, cultural learning, critical reflection, interaction with issues related to community and development, international ministry. But one of the things that is so important um, is he currently is the missionary church endowed professor of theology. The missionary church, um, several districts came together, the missionary church itself came together and wanted to fund a chair of theology at Bethel University. And um, Dr. Eby is that person. He is that professor who is the endowed professor of biblical theology. And that communicates something, a relationship that um, the the church and the university have together. And um, um, so, uh, he also serves on the athletic department. We're talking about some things, how we may be able to um, uh, expose some of our Summit Soccer, did you catch that this morning? We're moving from Upward Soccer to Summit Soccer. Some of our so- Summit Soccer um, students with Bethel University in the days ahead. He's the faculty representative for the athletic department um, is always on the move. Um, task forces, all those kinds of things. Um, I know that he has said to us, hey, just, you know, my name's Kent. That's the name my mom gave me. Um, and that's okay, but it's also I, I think it's important for you and me to understand um, that the, the demands coming to us um, is is well fit for this. Um, I'm I'm going to say one more thing, um, and it just it just talks about the heart of of um, We we do believe that uh, a servant is worthy of his hire, and um, we. Um, on that first night, um, approached Kent and said, never ask for anything to come and serve. And uh, we approached him and simply said, we want to uh, give you a gift. Um, And um, so he went on his way, but called back uh, right after that and said, "Um, if you'd allow me, um, you know, rewrite this check to Bethel University and let that go toward, more opportunities of being able to travel and go and share, um, and um, so he's he's coming to us serving out of a, just a heart of service, brother. That says so much to us. And um, um, uh, I'm not going to take more time. I could I could take more time, but I, I want you to to know that. Okay. So um, with that, um, not so brief. Um, a uh, few comments. Brother Kent, um, we're going to pray, and then uh, we want to hear what, uh, uh, what you have for us tonight. All right. Lord, thanks for this evening. Thank you for the people that are gathered here. Thank you, Lord, that you um, are here to help us, to understand, um, to, to gain understanding, to be people who uh, know your word and truth And to know what others are know, what they know and what they think, and um, the God you would help to help to sharpen our our minds uh, and the tools that we need to to minister to people in our world. So be with uh, Doctor Eby this evening as he teaches and help us to listen fast and and to understand and to continue to build. a knowledge a working knowledge of of the gospel and in our doctrine and so lord thank you for this evening bless brother ken as he comes now in jesus name amen brother. amen
1: thank you thank you for all those kind words too i appreciate it well good evening you came back thank you that's awesome We're going to try to unpack Hinduism together tonight. And I have to tell you, this is one of the most, if not the most difficult religious system to try and put together in a package because it's so vast and so varied that it's it's really not fair to say it's this because it's so many other things around this. So what I'm going to do this evening is I'm going to Limit Hinduism to three specific streams um, so that we can wrap our minds around it. But know that it's way, way more than that. About six or seven years ago, I was at the, at the Hindu temple on the north side of South Bend, Roseland, and I know the man who helped establish that. He's a professor at IUSB, uh, a very um, humble, kind man who's uh, one of the lead business professors at IUSB. And he started the the Hindu worship center in Roseland. Um, And we're sitting there with a group of students. And he looked at my students and he said, just ask any questions you want. And so we cover a broad uh, stroke look at Hinduism in class. And so they started asking him questions. And he looked at them, he goes, hmm, I haven't thought about that before. And so I answered the question, because it was something that we had studied. And that happened about two or three times, and he looked at me, he goes, you know more about Hinduism than I do. Now, maybe in the broad sense, but he knows way more about the practice and the meaning and the intention of what he and his family practice. So I share that with you because it's going to be, we're going to run really fast tonight okay i hope you wore your running shoes we're going to run really fast tonight and we're going to try and wrap our minds around a system that has challenged the world for thousands of years okay so i put a map up here because i wanted to show you where hinduism comes from the name hindu actually here i better put up the first slide oh i didn't take that okay we can do that. All right, so Hinduism, Hinduism and Judaism argue over which religious system is the oldest one in the world. So Hinduism will say, we're older. Judaism will stand on the side and say, no, 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 we're older. And so they, they both started just about the same time. So about the time God was calling Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, there was a people group known as the Aryans, and this has nothing to do with Hitler, and the Aryans that that were part of uh, Hitlerism, the Aryans, which was a distinct people group, were were marching over the mountains here into India. This is the highest mountain range in the world. Mount Kilimanjaro is in this mountain range. So they they were making some major inroads to an area of the world that hadn't really been gone into by by foreign people. So, the the people that were part of India proper were known as uh, Dravidians. The people that came across the Himalayan mountains were called Aryans. And so, Hinduism as a religious system is a mix of the Aryan religion that came across the the Himalayan mountains and the Dravidian religions of the people of that area. All of those things came together and began to form a system that the British called Hinduism. The Indians, the people from the Indian subcontinent, they don't necess- they call it they refer to it now as Hinduism, but originally it wasn't considered Hinduism. It didn't have a name because it was just this Multiplicity of systems of beliefs that were out there. When the British took over the Indian subcontinent, they were trying to figure out, what is the religion of the people here? We don't understand. And so they named it Hinduism. Now, this is probably more than you want to know. This is a geography lesson. So Pakistan used to be part of India. Nepal used to be part of India. Bangladesh used to be part of India. India. So the Indian subcontinent that Hinduism would have originated in took up this whole area. The Indus River is one of the famous rivers of the area. The Ganges River is the other one. So Hinduism actually gets its name from the Indus River, which is now in Pakistan. And the Brits just took that, because that was such an important river in their religious system... They just took that and they put that name over all of the religions of India. And they changed it from Hindu or Indus to Hindu. So that's kind of a little bit of where all of this comes from. Now let's start looking at what this is. So there are more than 330 million gods in the Hindu pantheon. A pantheon is. the the congregation of gods, okay? So one of the challenges, I'm going to skip way ahead really quickly and then we'll come back to it. One of the challenges of, of, of evangelizing to somebody who's a Hindu practitioner is they will very readily say, yeah, I'll believe in Jesus. But they add him to the pantheon instead of seeing him as the one and only God. And so that's where the 330 million and that's, that's really, uh, nobody can prove that it's 330 million. That's just a number that's out there to show how vast the, the pantheon of gods are in the Hindu belief system. So there are three, there are different paths and many practices in the Hindu re, uh, religious system. It's an evolving synthesis of the religion of the Aryan peoples, which I talked about here, crossing the mountains, the Himalayan mountains, that invaded India, the religion of the indigenous Dravidian peoples who were already there. So these are the these are four things or three things you need to know about Hinduism that that makes it uniquely a Hindu religion. First one is you have to regard the Vedas as authoritative and divinely inspired. The Vedas are a compilation of books, religious books. They're the oldest religious books in the Hindu religious system. And so it has to, you have to acknowledge the Vedas. So, for example, Buddhism. You ever heard of Buddhism? Buddhism is not a Hindu religion because they don't, they don't acknowledge the Vedas. You have to accept the caste system. And I'll unpack the caste system for us in just a little bit. And also, you have to respect the veneration of deities and spirits, including the protection of cows. So those are three things that you have to have in your religious system for it to be considered a Hindu religious system. So caste. Caste is one of the four hereditary and social divisions in Hinduism. The, the Hindu word, or the Sanskrit word for caste is Varna. And Varna in Sanskrit literally means color. And so the caste system was put together based on the color of people. The Aryans were a light-skinned people. The Dravidians were a very dark-skinned people. And so when the Aryans crossed the Himalayan mountains, they defeated the Dravidians militarily They merged their religious systems together, and the Aryans became the priests, and that's how they could control the people. So the Brahmin caste, the highest caste, were the lightest-skinned people when they established the caste system. It doesn't hold true today because of the intermarriages and and the intermingling. You're born into a caste now. You're not put into a caste But the the Brahmin caste, the priestly caste, were the lighter-skinned people. Then you had the Kshatriyas, who were the warriors and rulers. Then you had the Vaishyas, who were the landowners, the merchants, the people who made the money. Then you had the Shudras, who were the workers. And then we've added on to that, or they've added on to that, the very lowest of the lows, which are the Dalits. They're untouchable. They're not even considered human. see if I have it written down here. There are somewhere in the range, if I remember correctly, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, here it is. I have it written down. It says there are at least 2,000 castes in India today with about 50,000 subcastes. So everyone fits somewhere. And what does the caste system do? What the caste system does for them is it keeps social order. So you can't intermarry from one caste to another, or at least you're not supposed to. Caste systems designate what you will do, what occupations you can, you can fulfill. And so it, it, if you go to India, they'll say, oh, we don't have caste systems anymore. We don't, we don't believe in caste, we don't practice caste. But you talk to the people and they're like, oh yeah, they're here. And they're very, very rigid. So it's still something that that they wrestle with. Now, one of the things that we have to wrap our minds around as it relates to Hinduism is Hinduism is very tied to uh, humanity. It's tied to this concept of a body and a person. Let me explain to you what I mean. I'm going to erase this. That was some of my best artwork. I want you to know that. So let me just put this up here. I'm going to do a lot of writing tonight. I hope that's okay. So if this is a person, and I know proportions are really bad and I apologize, okay? I'm not an artist or at least I didn't pass art class. Let's put it that way. That's not a clown, that's a person, okay? So, the head, these are the Brahmins. They rule everything, okay? They are the highest caste. They hold the highest positions. The kshatriya, they're the body, they're the torso, The Vaishyas, they're the legs. And the Shudras are the feet, the workers. And the Dalits are below all that, the untouchables. And that's the way they would view the social order of things. Now, a few words that we need to understand. One of the things, okay, when I talk to my students and I teach world religions at Bethel, one of the things I say to them, you're not going to be an expert on these religions by the time we're done. Okay? But what I do hope you have is if you can understand some of the terminology and use their words instead of our words, that will open up doors for you to have conversations with people. And so I'm going to give you just a few vocabulary words. They're on your piece of paper there, I believe. So karma. Karma figures into the whole worldview of practicing Hindus. The best way we can describe karma in English is is cause and effect. So if you do good things, good karma will come to you. If you do bad things, bad karma will come to you and you, you walk through life trying to accumulate more good karma than bad karma. Because if you accumulate good karma, then when you're reincarnated, you'll be reincarnated at a higher level. And so it's a big part of, of their belief system, their worldview. Moksha. Moksha is release from samsara. Samsara is reincarnation. So moksha Once you've gone through reincarnation about a million times, then you'll break out of that and you'll reach moksha. The the easiest equivalent to moksha that we have in the Christian worldview is salvation. Moksha is that release from the bondage of the cycle of times and lives that you have here on this earth that allows you to go up to Brahma, the great God, Brahman, And so, moksha, if they talk about… Rarely will will practicing Hindus talk about moksha, but it's something that's in their mind. They want to reach that point of release. Maya. Maya is everything that's not Brahman. Brahman is the ultimate god, and Maya is anything that's not him or it. Now, this is an interesting concept And this is a concept that you can actually work with if you want to talk to somebody about Jesus as it relates to uh, being a Hindu versus a Christian. They have a concept called Atman. They believe that deep in the soul of a person, there is a little piece of Brahman, a little piece of God, and you have to cultivate that and grow that through all these cycles of reincarnation until that Atman, that piece of Brahma, Brahman grows so large in you that you actually merge with him. Does that make sense? Ecclesiastes tells us what? Life is Pardon? Life is, Life is meaningless. But what does it tell us about who we are? Go with me really quickly if you have your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, uh, sorry, Ecclesiastes 3. I'm going to start reading from verse 9. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 9. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Here you go, you all. He has set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. What's that eternity that He's placed in each one of us? It's that God-sized hole that's in us that only God can fulfill. Atman is something similar to that. They believe that there's a piece of Brahman in them that they have to cultivate and grow in them so that they have a greater knowledge of God. And that's the whole purpose of their life cycles. Does that make sense? That's a great opportunity to sit with somebody and talk with them about that. And scripturally show them that in Christianity, we believe that there's basically a, well, God, scripture says, God has set eternity in our hearts. And we have yet to grasp that. And that's what Jesus helps us do. Because he's God. Does that make sense? And so it, it really, and it doesn't matter what stream of Hinduism people practice, This is in all of them, this idea of Atman. So we've got Maya and Atman twice. Nirvana, the state of supreme bliss. Dharma. Anybody remember, oh, what was the name of the TV program? There was a TV program, it was a husband and wife, and her name was Dharma. Dharma and Greg, yeah. Yeah. Did you know that dharma is actually a religious term from Hinduism for the way of the gods? And so oftentimes, Hindus will be named after a god or some religious term. Just like if you remember we talked about in Islam. Remember the Johnny Quest? Yeah. Haji? Haji? That's the name of somebody who's completed a hajj. So, just like we include religious names in, in families, they do as well. Dharma is literally the true way of the gods, the path of the gods. Samsara, reincarnation. Karma, we talked about that. Moksha, we talked about that. Maya and Atman, we talked about those, okay? All those work together. And if you can understand and remember those terms, that will open doors for you when you are sitting down with somebody who's a a Hindu practitioner. Oops. So really quickly, a, a term that you're probably familiar with is guru. You've heard about gurus. Gurus are spiritual leaders or guides. And then a mantra. This is something, all right, some of you aren't gonna like me really well after tonight. And I wanna apologize before I step on your toes, but I'm gonna step on your toes, okay? One of the biggest forms of exercise in America today is something called yoga. And I'm not going to ask you if you practice yoga or not. Please don't tell me whether you do or not. But I'm going to talk about yoga. Because yoga is a very specific religious practice in Hinduism. And If you get beyond beginning yoga and go to the intermediate level of of yoga, they're going to teach you mantras. They're going to teach you um, sayings that you can say while you're doing your exercises, meditations that you can meditate while you're doing your exercises. Those are all religiously based. A mantra is a sacred verbal formula repeated in prayer and meditation in the practice of Hinduism. The most important mantra in Hinduism is something that as kids we used to make fun of. You know, you sit cross-legged, hold your hands out like this and go, "Aum." We used to do that as kids, just a joke. That's a very significant and deeply spiritual mantra in Hinduism. In fact, that symbol on the bottom left-hand side, that's the Aum symbol. And Aum in, in uh, Hinduism, in Sanskrit, encompasses all of life, just in that three-syllable Aum. So, on the very bottom there, I have Om or Aum. It's actually Aum, Aum, so it's three sounds. It's the supreme and most sacred syllable consisting in Sanskrit for the three sounds, the A, the U, and the M. Mm representing various fundamental triads and is believed to be the spoken essence of the universe. It is uttered as a mantra and it's affirmations of blessings. So let me unpack that really quickly for us. So I'm going to leave this up here because we're going to use this some more. But if I would put the ah here, the ooh, in the M, so I'm not going to write the Sanskrit words here, but essentially what this the A symbolizes is beginning. And the God who's associated with beginnings in Hinduism is the God Brahma. The U has to do with duration, and the god who's associated with that is the god Vishnu, and he is the most popular god in Hinduism, and we'll unpack that in a little bit later. And then the M is disillusion or dissolving, and the god for that is Shiva. So, in those three syllables, it encompasses the whole worldview of a practicing Hindu beginning, duration, and end. In fact, they have a saying in Hinduism it must begin to end. And it must end to begin. And it's this circle. And, and I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit later. So all of that is encompassed just in those three syllables. So paths of Hinduism. There, as I mentioned, there are three paths. The oldest path is called Vedic Hinduism or Brahmanism, the way of works. It's the absolute oldest path in Hinduism. There are fewer Hindus outside of India who practice Brahmanism. Most of them live in India because it's a priestly priestly practice. In Brahmanism, only the Brahmins, Brahmins, the priests, they're the only ones who can reach moksha. They're the only ones who can reach salvation. They're the only ones who can break out of the cycle of reincarnation. And that's really limiting when you only have a few who are Brahmins. And so people kind of started to push back against that. And they developed a second path about 500 B.C. called Vedantic Hinduism. Vedantic Hinduism, a better way of saying that is a way of knowledge. Another way you could state that is philosophical Hinduism. That's where they took the Vedas and they started unpacking and interpreting them and applying them to everything in life. They rationalized the Vedas. They philosophized the Vedas. And so it became the path of knowledge. So to reach moksha, to reach that point of salvation, to reach that point of breaking out of samsara, you have to know the right things. That's still very limiting to people because not many people in traditional India, before the Brits got there, were educated. So they formed a third path. And the third path is the largest path, bhakti. Bhakti Hinduism. That is the widest and biggest path of Hinduism, Hindu practice all around the world. And Bhakti Hinduism is called the way of devotion. <clears throat> In a nutshell, okay, this is, a, this is, it really doesn't do them service, but for us to wrap our minds around it and understand what it is, Bhakti Hinduism is, has the belief that if you choose a God, and you venerate that god, or goddess, and you make them a part of your life, and you do everything that is part of the worship of that god or goddess, you have a chance of reaching moksha. So it's all about devotion to that one god. So in practice, or in the study of religions, we have polytheism, are you familiar? Well, let's go monotheism, what's monotheism? One god, okay? Polytheism is the belief in many gods, right? Hinduism is something called henotheism. That's the belief in many gods, so polytheistic belief, but the worship of one. That's called henotheism. So Hinduism is predominantly a henotheistic system. They they will venerate many gods, but there's one that's their family God. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, when you're reincarnated, if your karma exceeds, if your good karma exceeds your bad karma, you will rise up in your birth order and you have the, the possibility of being born in another caste. So, And that's really significant in Brahmanism, because the only way you could reach moksha is to eventually rise up to the Brahmin caste and become a priest and then go into, into moksha. The problem with that, sorry ladies, I didn't make up the rules, the problem with that is it's men. They did. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't. Don't shoot the messenger, okay, please? So, would Brahmanism, with
2: those that practice that, that level be scoffing at authenticity below any other practice,
1: would they recognize that as just another way? I think they. That's a really good question. Everything that I've read and all the people that I've spoken with, they, would, they wouldn't see it as scoffing at something other. They would just say it's a different way. Yeah. I mean, of course, I have the right way, but you can practice the other one. Yeah. So, I, there's not a lot of animosity between them because it's such a broad system and there's so many ways. Yeah. It's a really good question. So... Um, The the professor that I told you about from IUSB, he's a friend of mine. We've gone out to to lunch together a few times. He's opened up the Hindu Worship Center to my students on a regular basis. And we ask him, how do you know um, that you've been reincarnated even? And his response is, have you ever encountered a moment where you thought, ah, I've experienced that before? Or I've run into that before. We call it deja vu. He calls it remembering my previous life. And so you won't necessarily remember that you came from another caste. That's not as important as how you live your life now. So you'll get deja vu about some things that might give you inklings of what your previous life was like but it's most important how you're living right now and you're accumulating that good moksha. Or good karma, sorry, good karma. Good questions, you all. So, let's talk about the scripture of Hinduism. I've already mentioned the Vedas. So, there are four Vedas. Let me rephrase that. There are four categories of Vedas. Each category can have multiple volumes, okay? So it's not just four books. It's four categories. There's the Rig Veda, which is, those are verses, verses that they'll memorize and quote. So if you would go to a a Hindu worship center and you would watch them as they go through their, their time of worship, there often time will be times will be a priest, and the priest will be going around a particular uh, idol or god that you're that you're venerating at that time, and he will be reciting verses. Those verses would more than likely come from the Rig Veda. There's also the Yajur Veda, which are mantras. The Samaveda, which are songs and chants all three of those would be included in worship. But they're so vast and they're so big that one priest specializes in one of the Vedas. And so, because there's so much to memorize and so much to know, the priest spends his whole life working in one of the Vedas. The Atharva Veda, the magic spells, that's, that's it's considered Vedic, it's considered a Veda, but it's used very, 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 very seldom. And so it, there's not really a priest or priests that are devoted to the study of, of, the, of the Atharva Veda, it's just there, if that makes sense. I really don't even know because there's so little literature out there about the Atharva Veda that it's, it's not that well known. hmm it's possible it's possible but see there again that would go against karma because if i cast an evil spell on someone then that's going to bring bad karma to me not good karma to me i'm going to want to help people not cast them down does that make sense and so logically I I really don't know how they use the spells because it's just it's not spoken about. It's not written about in Hindu literature that I've found anyway. It's mentioned, but it's not really unpacked. In fact, we talked. I talked to one of the priests at the at the Hindu worship center in Roseland, and he wouldn't even talk about the Atharva Veda. No. Yes. That's a good question. Um, My understanding is no, it doesn't. Did everybody hear the question? My understanding is no, it doesn't impact because that's their place. So I can do anything to a Dalit that I want to because they're not even human. Not significantly, no. No, it would be more if, there's a, if you're a kshatriya and you disrespect a brahmin, that's going to affect your karma worse than a, a brahmin just ignoring a kshatriya or vaisha, which are the castes below them. So accept, uh, thinking, from, uh, the... In a purely caste system, yes, but here in the United States where they, they say they don't honor castes, then some of the kindest people you will ever meet are people who are practicing Hindus. They will do anything for you out of respect for you as a human being. Within limits. Within limits, yeah. They're some of the hardest working and kind people you'll ever encounter. Because that's part of building up their good karma. And I'll talk about that. I'll talk about the four things that are a part of their life. So, the second set of scriptures then are called the Upanishads or the Vedanta. And, and, and Vedanta literally means to sit down. And so, what the Vedanta are, is the Vedanta are priestly interpretations of the Vedas. So, they're writings about the Vedas by scholars, by priests by philosophers. So when you go into the academic world, a world that I have one foot in, there's a lot of writing about Hinduism, and most of that writing is from the perspective of the Vedanta because the academics of Hinduism live in in, uh, Upanishadic Hinduism, Vedantic Hinduism. That's where they wrestle with concepts from the Vedas, does that make sense? And then you have what are called the Mahabharata, and the Mahabharata is a text that can be divided into two pieces, and the two pieces of the Mahabharata are the Bhagavad Gita, or affectionately referred to in Hinduism as the Gita, and then the Ramayana. The Gita is the most used uh, religious text in Hinduism. So most Hindus that you would encounter, they would be very familiar with the Gita. And you can can find copies of the Gita just about anywhere. So, but all of them acknowledge and believe that the Vedas are scripture. Does that make sense? Whether you're Vedantic, whether you're Bhakti, you still venerate the Vedas.
2: Mm-hmm. Where, where are these, how are they putting these things together
1: I mean, thinking of that, in the Thank you. In the ho- historical context, when the Aryan peoples came down into the Indian subcontinent and, and basically intermingled with, intermarried with the Dravidian peoples, they conquered them, but they intermarried with them. And as they built their religious system, as they developed their religious system, they, they built and, and developed the religious texts. And so the Vedas were the first compilation of religious texts in Hindu belief. So the text came out of the practice. Yes, yes. I would say it's more the text came out of the practice than the text developed the practice. And the reason I say that is because um, the main gods that we're going to look at in a little bit are named in the Vedas under different names and so the the characteristics of the the gods in the vedas are renamed in bhakti hinduism but the characteristics are the same if that makes sense so let me let me let me take just a a quick time out here because i love your questions and please Keep asking them, okay? I want you to ask questions. I want this to to try and make sense for you. But this is going to be the most challenging religious system to wrap your mind around because it contradicts itself and it's so broad that it's really difficult to wrap our arms around. Okay? So keep asking questions. I love your questions. They're really, really good. But there are going to be times that the answer I give you contradicts a previous answer, and that's because they contradict one another. So these are the four goals of human life. This is for every Hindu, whether they're a a Brahmanistic Hindu, whether they're a Vedantic Hindu, whether they're a Bhakti Hindu, these four life values are core to everything that they do and everything that they are. So the first one is Dharma. Remember, what's Dharma mean? Really quickly, remember? It's a test. It's a quiz. It's your first quiz in in three times together. What's Dharma? You remember? It's the way of the gods, okay? But it also is virtue, proper living, and moral living. And that, if you walk the way of the gods, you'll be virtuous, you'll be proper, and you'll be moral. So remember I told you that if you encounter a practicing Hindu here in the U.S., they'll be some of the kindest, nicest people you'll ever meet, because that's a huge part of who they are. Secondly, comma. Pleasure, sensuality, and emotional fulfillment. Having fun. Having fun. And that has to do with physical pleasure, emotional pleasure, familial pleasure, all of that. The third one is Artha. Material prosperity and income security. Practicing Hindus, you all, are some of the most industrious, hardworking people you'd ever want to meet. Have you ever bought gasoline at a marathon station? Almost all of the marathon stations in northern Indiana are part of a Hindu network. And they work all the time. And then moksha. Emancipation, liberation, and release from this life. And so that's the goal of living your life is to ultimately reach moksha that release, where you can finally merge with Brahman, the ultimate God essence that's out there. This is really important, you all, to understand these four things. So if you want to talk to a practicing Hindu about your Christian faith, you can kind of structure it around these four great values that are part of a Hindu's life. Are your hands okay? I see people doing a lot of writing. That's good. I like that. Yes? Okay. We're going to get, the next section we're going to get into are the gods, and the cows will fit with that. So, and it is absolutely wow. fast. Anybody here been to India before? It's absolutely fascinating. You can be going down an eight-lane super highway, and all of a sudden traffic goes Arr! to a stop. And that's because there's a cow laying in the middle of the road. And everybody has to go around the cow. That's how venerated they are. You don't mess with a cow. So... Keep that question. Don't let me forget it. Okay, please. (laughs) We'll unpack that. Okay. All right, are we ready to move on? Okay, good. All right, so Hindu bhakti deities. So this is something that I've created just to help for clarity's sake, okay? Okay. So the God essence, the God essence of Hinduism is known as Brahman. And you're going to see a lot of Brahma in terminology. Brahman is the God essence, Brahmin are the priests, and Brahma is the creator God. And there are more than that, but I'm going to stop with that. And and Katie, you had to remember all of them for the test, didn't you? (laughs) I'm not asking you to now, I know you did then, because I asked my students to remember all of them. I wasn't putting you on the spot to ask you to remember them now, but you had to for the test, I know that. So this, I'm a visual person, this just helps me understand kind of how the pieces come together. So remember that is only bhakti Hinduism. That's only one stream. And that's what I'm going to focus on now for the rest of our time. Because that is the largest area of practice in Hinduism. And so, for us to wrap our minds around uh, the biggest stream of Hinduism, it's known as bhakti. And there are three primary gods in bhakti Hinduism there's Brahma, the creator god. There's Vishnu, the sustainer god, and there's Shiva, the destroyer god. And then we have what are called Shakti, off to the side of the right, or goddesses, and those are the wives of the gods. So that's a fourth stream that's kind of developed through history. So Brahma is married to, underneath him there is Sarswati. Vishnu, his primary wife is called Lakshmi. Shiva, his consort or wife, her name is Parvati. And then the goddesses, Kali, Durga, and a whole bunch of others, which I'll unpack some of those for you, are are also tied to these gods. And I'm not going to tell you how they're tied yet, because it gets really confusing when we start tying them together. Okay? Okay? So, there are three main schools of Hindu practice. There's the Vaishnavite school. That's the school that worships Vishnu and all the gods and goddesses associated with Vishnu. That's the largest school of Hinduism. Then there's the Shaivite school. And the Shaivite school follows Shiva, the destroyer god. And then there's the shaktite school. The shaktite school follows the shakti or the wives of the gods or the consorts of the gods. I was trying to see if I had written down the percentages here, but I don't believe I have. But I do know that the Vaishnavite school is the largest. So let's look at some of these. Now, wait, I want to go back. So, one thing you'll notice is look at this, you all. I, I don't know if this pointer, look at the left. There's no one under Brahma. That's because there are only one or two known temples to Brahma in the world. And actually, it's considered wrong in Hinduism to worship him. He's the creator god. But, you all, that is a common practice in pagan religions. If you study African traditional religions, almost every one of them has a creator God. And it's almost always a man, or male. But as soon as they create, they're shoved off to the side. I don't think think so? Let me explain to you why I think it is. Because pagan religions worship the most powerful gods. And nobody nobody was here when the gods created the world. So we don't know how powerful that was. Or I should I'm putting myself in their shoes now. But you ever sat through a really bad thunderstorm where the lightning strikes a tree like 10 feet from you and the whole ground shakes and it makes a crack that, that rings your ears for three days afterwards. Now that's powerful. And so many of the gods that end up being venerated, worshiped, are the ones that they can, they can see what their power is like. And so because the creator gods, we're not around for the creation of, of whatever it is, they're pushed off to the side. They're not powerful. All they did was create. I mean, come on. They just created. That's all. But the gods that are worshipped are the ones that are in your everyday life. They're the ones that, are the, that you can see their power. That's the way I would understand it. I, I, I hope I'm not wrong in that, but in the way that I've read it, that's, that's one of the primary reasons why they marginalize the creator God. Pagan religions, you all... And I and I group Hinduism in, in pagan religions because pagan religions are religions that worship creation. Let me let me say that again, pagan religions are religions that worship the created things, creation. And there's all kinds of different forms of it. But in Hinduism, the belief system it's all tied to created things. African traditional religions, it's all tied to what they can see, taste, feel, experience. Native American traditional religions, it's all tied to what they can see, taste, feel, and experience. And so you have the sun god, you have the rain god, the wind god, the see where I'm going? And it's all tied to created things. Hinduism is very similar to that. And so they would be very, very offended if they heard me say that it's a pagan religion. Okay? I'm, I'm making an assessment now, and I'm giving you my assessment. But I believe it's, very, it's so close to the pagan belief systems that I think it fits right in with it. So let's talk about some of the God's. So, all right, let's, let's talk cows now. Let's talk cows now. That will help us understand the pagan part of this. So why is the cow so venerated? Because the cow is an animal that was integrated in every facet of their lives. Everyone had cows. And a cow is viewed as one who participates in the circle of life. Okay. So a cow gives birth. A cow gives sustenance with its milk. A cow oftentimes is gentle and models gentility and not a moral life but you know a life that gets along with other people. And this is forgive me But a cow also fertilizes the ground, which creates more life. And so it it is this circle of life. And because everyone had cows, everyone understood cows, and they weren't these aggressive animals like tigers and bears and other animals that are part of the Indian subcontinent, they were... Venerated such that now you leave them alone. They can run, go wherever they want to go, do whatever they want to do, because they represent the gods and the virtues of the gods to us. Yes. That's a really good question. I don't know of anyone who owns cows. I think they just kind of roam, um, but, but they will take care of them. They will feed them and make sure that they're, they're taken care of and protected in a sense. Um, no, not that I'm aware of, not that I'm aware of. So let's talk about some of the gods then. So there's Brahma, and he's he's multi-headed. Okay, you can see he's got faces facing the different directions, north, south, east, west, because he created all that is and sees all that is. He has multiple hands, and those hands represent the different um, levels of life. So oftentimes, a very highly venerated or, or respected God who is a God in this life but also in the afterlife, they'll have four, four hands. They'll have a set for this life and then the second set is to reach into the eternal. And so here you see that Brahma, because he's the creator God, he has even more hands. He's got three sets of hands. And so he, he can reach into all areas of life. Because he creates, not because he's so all-powerful. So there are, there are a few statues because people need to know who he is, but there, I think, are only one or two temples around the world to him. And he's not worshipped. He's not one of the gods that are a personal god to a family. So, not to be confused with Brahman. Brahma is the creator god. Few Hindus worship him today. His wife is Saraswati, and she is highly venerated. Okay, there are Shakti temples to Saraswati. She is the goddess of learning, knowledge, and wisdom. So, let me give you an example so Chuck and I are brothers. Our family god is Vishnu. But while we're at university, even though our family god is Vishnu, we're going to venerate Sarswati because she's the goddess of learning, knowledge, and wisdom. And at university, that's why we're there, right? To get learning, knowledge, and wisdom. So we're going we're gonna to do everything we can to make sure that Sarswati is appeased so that she will pour into our lives. Does that make sense? And it's okay, because we're polytheistic, or henotheistic, we believe in all these other gods, as long as we have a family god. It doesn't tick off the family nope. God. Nope. They're fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's the consort or wife of Brahma. The Sanskrit word sarah, means essence. S- uh, swa means self. Thus, Sarswati means essence of self. That's the etymology of her name. She's worshiped by all who are interested in knowledge. Then there's Vishnu. He's the preserver God. So I'm going to take a really quick time out. I want to explain something to you. Yeah, I can write right on the back of this. So, squirrel moment. Okay, did you all see the squirrel over there? Okay, good. I'm glad. <laughs> when we think about time in our worldview, what does time look like? Hours, linear. minutes, seconds. It's linear. So, as Christians, who created Time. God so there's a distinct beginning to time when God created time right and we go through time and we if we read the scripture and understand scripture there will be an end to time as well on this earth right so we know the beginning and the end and who controls everything in between right and that's our worldview of time A Hindu worldview of time is this. No beginning, no end. And you just live in that cycle of time. So Brahma created that time. Vishnu preserves that time. So, he makes sure that that time continues to cycle. And in that worldview, there's good and evil. Okay? So, time that Brahma has created has more good in it. So, that's where karma fits in, right? Good karma, bad karma. So, when Brahma creates a cycle of time, there's more good karma, there's more good than there is evil. And Vishnu's job is to preserve that time. Shiva, which we ha- whom we haven't met yet, he's the destroyer god. So he works in conjunction with Vishnu to come into this time and destroy evil. But as everyone knows, evil continues to grow. So when this circle of time has more evil than good, then Shiva will destroy that cycle of time. Brahma will create another one. And they go back to work. Now that's a really elementary explanation. It's a much deeper belief system than that. But that's their concept of time. Yes? So when they get that buzz, then they're, like they're released from time, then what happens? They venture over to the other time. So the good, the good. The bad is destroyed, the good goes on. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. It's probably an unfair question, but I do that every now and then. Where's the hope in the system? If you're good enough. You have to earn and be good enough. And so in many materials that I've read, they'll say that it takes almost a million incarnations to rise up where a Brahman, the Atman in you, develops to the point where you can... Have moksha and go to Brahman. Where's the hope in this? Yeah. We know who started time. We know who's sovereign in time and benevolent and gracious and loving, so loving that he stepped off the throne of heaven and came down in the person of Jesus, that we might know him intimately and have a way of redemption where we can approach the throne of God with confidence and we know when that time will end and the glory that will be at the end. There's so much hope in that, you all. Yes? hmm Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right.
0: Where is evil coming from? Is, is somebody responsible for evil?
1: So in in every religious system that I'm familiar with, except for Judaism and Christianity, um And this isn't part of Hinduism, but it's part of Eastern religions. It's a symbol that you're probably familiar with. Ah, I can never draw this well. So, you've seen it, the yin-yang symbol? You know what I'm, ah, that's really terrible, but you know what the yin-yang symbol is, right? So, the yin-yang symbol is is the belief that, I'm gonna erase that, because that's really horrible. The yin-yang symbol is the belief that if you have good, to know good, you have to have evil to know good. To know evil, you have to have good to know evil. And so in, in most religious systems of the world, evil is a substance that's created just like good is created. And that's a major difference between Christianity and Judaism than all the other religious systems out there. God declared everything he created in Scripture to be what? Uh, Very good. Very good. On the sixth day, he declared everything very good. And that's because there was no evil. And so, where did evil come from? If we believe Augustine or Augustine, evil is not a substance that was created. Rather, it's the taking of the good substance that God created and twisting it into something that it wasn't meant to be. So God created everything good, and when Adam and Eve sinned, we started twisting that which was good into something that it wasn't meant to be. So God didn't create that. We did. So if we have a belief system that's of our creation, there has to be good and there has to be evil. They, yeah you're right they don't know they they have they hope that it will get better but there's no guarantee that it will get better um, the and that's where bhakti comes in so in bhakti Hinduism because if you if you venerate that one God well enough that the Brahman in you develops the Atman develops then that and that's where gurus will come in as well is they already know the path to moksha and they'll help lead you there faster. And so those are some of the hopes that, that creep in there. So, I mean, there is, as, as our brother stated, there is some hope in the system, but it, it's totally dependent on that system. Not on the gods, but on you. And I don't know about you, but if I have to depend on myself... I would be very scared because I know who I am. I mean, I don't believe this is taking Scripture out of context. Let me share with you a, a Scripture that I've wrestled with, and I've got to hurry up here, um, that I've wrestled with for years until I got older. And I started understanding it. First Timothy, chapter 1. Now, I love Paul. Paul blesses my life on a daily basis when I read what what God has written through him. But this is a passage that I really struggled with. And now I think it's one of the most beautiful passages that are out there in Scripture. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, Paul writes this. He says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Oh, wait a minute. Come on, y'all. No, 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 no. The guy that wrote over half of the New Testament is going to stand there and say, I'm the worst of sinners? Come on. Come on. But Paul knows who he is. Paul remembers who he is before he surrendered his life to Christ. Paul knows who he would be if he ever turned his back on Christ. And he knows. His total and complete dependence on the grace, love, and mercy of our Savior. And I think that's beautiful. So he knows he can't depend on himself. He knows that the one he must depend on is the Savior of the world. And they don't have that in Hinduism. The one you depend on is you. Um, he's he's considered a possible God, but and we're going to talk about this next week a little bit. It's the concept of who is Jesus. Who do we believe Jesus is? Do we allow Scripture to determine for us who Jesus is? Or do we let culture? Do we let our minds? Do we let our... You see what I'm saying? So in answer, that's a really good question. But in answer to that, to allow Jesus to be who he says he is in Christian Scripture they would not accept that because that's exclusivist and that eliminates the other 330. So let's, let's quickly look at the other gods. What did I do? Help, Caleb. There we go. thank you. All right, so the supreme god, Vishnu is the preserver, supreme god in Vaishnavite tradition of Hinduism. He's the ultimate omnipresent reality. Now, Vishnu is the only one of these gods that we know of that has many incarnations of himself. Those are called avatars. You ever heard of an avatar? It's now just a common term that we use for an emoji, right? But avatar actually has a Hindu religious meaning. It's an incarnation of a Hindu god. I, I have given you on the sheet there, I believe, there are 11 incarnations of Vishnu. Aren't they on the, the back of the, sec, the second sheet there? Yeah. So that gives you the 10 incarnations. And the 11th one is possibility of Jesus. But it has to be a watered-down Jesus. It can't be the Jesus of Scripture. So Lakshmi is his consort. She's the goddess of wealth, fortune, and prosperity. She's a consort or wife of Vishnu. She has four hands, and they represent the four goals of human life. So remember those four goals that we talked about? Her hands represent those. Dharma, Kama, Artha, and Moksha. So as a good business person, you would want Lakshmi on your side. Shiva Shiva is the destroyer god the supreme god in Shaivite tradition of Hinduism Shiva is the god of contrasts he's the auspicious one the destroyer he's light and darkness he's good and evil he's creation and destruction he's rest and activity he's mild and terrible he's asceticism and sensuality he's male and female he's the god of contrasts He's oftentimes, this is the most common uh, depiction of Shiva. And I won't go into that. So, Parvati is his wife or his consort. She's the goddess of love and fertility and devotion. She's the recreative energy and power of Shiva. And is the cause of a bond that connects all beings. So, this is my... American understanding of Shiva and Parvati. So they are both good and evil. They're creation and destruction. So let's say we'll have Shiva here. And we'll have Parvati his wife with him. And so they're good and evil, creation and destruction. Now, let's, let's let that hang there for just a minute. They have two sons, Ganesha. Or Ganesh, he's the elephant-headed god, widely revered as the remover of obstacles, and more generally as the lord of beginnings and obstacles. So if Chuck and I are still in university together, we're going to go and we're going to, before every exam, we're going to make sure that Ganesh is happy, because he's going to remove all the obstacles so we can get an A on the exam. And that's simplifying it, but pardon? Well, he removes the obstacles. The wisdom comes from the wisdom goddess. Um, Actually, you can look at it any way you want. Yeah, but it's 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 uh, Ganesh that's going to remove the obstacles for us. He's the oldest son of Shiva and Parvati, patron of arts, sciences, diva of intellect. Deva here means God, God of intellect and wisdom. He's one of the best known and most widely worshipped deities in the Hindu pantheon. Ganesha's everywhere. Kartikeya is the second son of, uh, of Shiva and Parvati. He's the youngest. He is the commander-in-chief of the army, the army of the gods. He's also known as Skanda. Murugan, Kumaran, and Subramana that one. So, do you see in the sons two sides? Not that all war is evil. I'm not trying to say that, but in the in the depiction of the two sons, they play both sides. Now, here's Kali. Kali is the Hindu goddess associated with death and destruction. She's the wife of Shiva. Now, wait a minute. I thought Parvati was the wife of Shiva. Parvati is the wife of Shiva, but so is Kali. Despite her negative connotations, she is today often thought of as the goddess of time and change. So, remember, Shiva is the god of contrasts. Evil, good. Creation, destruction. Parvati also... So Kali is the iteration of Parvati over here, and then we're going to meet another goddess, Durga, who is the the benevolent, good, creative side of Parvati. This is my way of understanding it. This is not the Hindu way of understanding it, okay? But I want to try and help make sense out of it. So Durga is the warrior goddess battles evil. She's considered to be an aspect of Kali and the mother of Ganesha. Now, are you ready for your heads to explode? So I was at a Hindu temple talking to one of the priests, and I said, so if I'm understanding correctly, then Kali is the destruction side of Parvati, Durga is the benevolent side of Parvati. He said, yes. I said, so are they all part of Parvati? He said, no, they're their own goddesses. Wait. So as they've broken away in their iterations, they've become their own goddesses. But they still tie back to Parvati somehow. Does that make sense? So Shiva is not a polygamist. He's not married to many goddesses. He's married to Parvati. But Kali, as the destructive side or the destruction side of Parvati, is his wife. Durga, as the benevolent side of Parvati, is his wife. But they're their own goddesses. And I still haven't wrapped my mind around that and made sense of it, you all but it's just generally accepted that that's the way it is. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. It is. It is. And I... I don't want to make too much of it. I'm glad you brought that up, Dan, because Kali is actually the most venerated goddess in Nepal. The Nepalese people have somehow embraced Kali, and she is, there are more Kali temples there than other goddesses. And they will oftentimes, because young girls are are exposed, you know what I mean by exposed? They want boys and so they'll expose a a female baby and they'll just leave her out on a doorstep somewhere to die. So in the Kali temples, they will take those young girls and they'll raise them and then they become, for lack of a better way of saying it, slaves in the Kali temple. That's the kindest way I can say it. And it's a horrible life for them. Now, there's more I could say but I better not. With, with everyone that's in the room. But it gets really, really dark really, really fast. Um, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that, so, so thank you. <clears throat> so what convictions unite Hindus? What, what are things that they, so karma, samsara, which is reincarnation, moksha, the The story of salvation within many Hindu stories. Hindus closest thing to a central story. So um, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavad- Gita is a story of war and a decision that a young man has to make in that, in that war, in, or, in, in essence, to kill his cousins or have his cousins killed, to honor the gods, to be righteous, to be moral. And so it's this moral dilemma of honoring my kinsmen who are wrong or honoring the gods, which means my kinsmen die. And it's this epic battle in the, in the life of this young warrior of how he's supposed to choose that. If he chooses for the gods, that's a story that leads to the possibility of moksha, or salvation. Does that make sense? And so the the scriptures are, are oftentimes these epic stories that have to do with virtues and morality and choosing the right things. Now, remember this though. The scriptures of Hinduism are not historic. The people that are spoken about, the gods that are spoken about are not ones that have actually been experienced here on this earth. They are creations of a religious system. So how do they worship? The most common form of worship is what's called the domestic puja. So most Hindus, not every Hindu, most Hindus will have a room or a space in a room in their house where they'll have a little statue of the God that's their family God. And they will go there, and they will burn incense. They will light candles. They will lay food and drink before the God so that the God doesn't go hungry. And they will do chants and songs and spend time meditating before that particular God or goddess. They don't have Sunday worship or regular worship where they have to go to the temple so they can practice puja at home. There's also puja in the temple. And so, I always get this mixed up. So they can go to temple or shrines. The nearest one to us is in Roseland, just north of South Bend. There's also a very large Hindu temple in Lamont, Illinois, just off of I-55 that has a uh, a uh, a Vaisnavite temple and a Shavite temple all on the same grounds. If you ever get a chance to go visit, go visit. They're very cordial. They'll let you in and let you, they'll explain things to you, give you a tour. It's really worth experiencing, seeing. So puja is their way of worship. They can do it at home or they can go to temple. Usually temple puja is reserved for holidays or special events. But the one in Roseland was actually developed for more regular puja because the families, the Hindu families that had immigrated from India found their young people uh, abandoning Hinduism. And so they established this temple to bring their children back in to try and uh, help them to, to have more practice of Hinduism. At least that's what was explained to me by the guy who founded the temple. Now I want to talk about yoga. And please don't hate me, okay? But yogas are paths, there are actually six, six or seven paths of yoga. And <clears throat> so there's royal yoga, which is a, a philosophical intellectual yoga, exercise of the mind, what we practice here in the United States is known as Hatha yoga. Hatha yoga is physical yoga. It's physical positions, stretching, and positions that you, you train your body to do what you want it to do. And the whole purpose, the whole purpose is they believe in what's called the kundalini spirit. Kundalini spirit is the serpent spirit. And so the serpent spirit. In humanity is represented by the spine. So hatha yoga is designed to manipulate the muscles and the structure of your body to align the kundalini spirit. The mantras then are, are sayings that you practice in essentially inviting the gods into you, the spirits into you, to help you align the kundalini spirit. And I'm not saying that everyone who practices yoga is going to do this, okay? That's not what I'm saying here tonight. But what I'm saying is if you understand the true meaning of yoga, that's the original purpose of it. When I was in India, they were trying to get a law passed that every school in India had to reinstate yoga because too many of the young young people were being proselytized by Christians. And they felt if they instituted yoga in all the schools, that would bring them back to Hinduism. That's how important yoga is to Hinduism. And if you would talk to somebody from India and you would ask them about Christian yoga, they would say, what? Huh? No such thing. Because yoga is Sanskrit for the word yoke. So the practice of yoga is the yoking of you to the kundalini spirit, ultimately. And the practice of hatha is not necessarily going to take you there because there are five or six other paths, but you're opening yourself up to that. Is it good exercise? It's really good exercise, okay? But can't we exercise and do things without calling it yoga? Yoga. Why don't we call it Christian exercise? Seriously, nobody can answer that. Nobody has ever answered that question for me. That is a question though, if we're not
0: calling it yoga and yet, because I'm like, they stole all the good stretches then. I'm like, how do you get a good stretch? It's like, so if I do those stretches as just a regular way of stretching, is
1: that still yoga? It's not part of the yogic system. So the yogic system is a system that directs. The practitioner to a specific goal so the specific purpose of yoga and what they've done okay and I've received more nasty emails and texts over my, this topic than anything I've ever taught and and it's okay most of the the yoga uh, places here in our area Talk to the the ones who've started them. Most of them have studied under a yogi somewhere, a guru. And they're not going to present that to you the first time you walk in their doors. They're going to get you to do the stretches and the exercises with them. And you're going to feel physically good, okay? And then they're going to ask you if you want to sign up for intermediate yoga, And you go to the intermediate class, and then you're going to do more stretches, but they're going to add mantras to it. And the mantra is going to be in Sanskrit. And you're not necessarily going to know what you're saying. And they can tell you whatever they want to tell you about what it's saying. And then, if you really get involved in that, then they're going to take you to the next level. And all of that's to lead you into that practice. The stretches are not, in and of themselves, bad. It's the system that they're tied to that leads you to a specific goal that's a challenge. Does that make sense? And because we love exercise, we don't think about it. So all I'm asking you to do is just be careful. Know what you're getting yourself into. Know what you're possibly opening yourself up to. Because those mantras and those specific ways that they put things together in the exercises are designed for an end goal. And that's what I have for tonight. Questions? Sorry, I went over time. Another 15 minutes. I apologize. Yeah. No, women reincarnate. Women reincarnate. I, I was saying in Brahmanism, in the priestly religion, only men can be priests. So, so the goal then would be for you to reincarnate. So in their system of belief, okay, Ken, don't shoot the messenger, please. But in their system of belief, if you're, re- if you're reincarnated as a female, that's a lower form of humanity. And so you would want to be reincarnated as a male. That's their belief, not mine. And so, and that's why Brahmanism is so little practiced today. Now, uh, it's it's mostly Vedantic or Bhakti Hinduism that are the two larger ones. Yes. That's a good question. I've never asked a practicing Hindu that question and, and received an answer. In the literature that I've read, um, they will expose female babies because they, they value the male babies more. Um, how they make that choice, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. Because part of, part of the process of life is, is creating new life. So. so do they feel they're lowering themselves? No, no, no it's, just, it's just part of the cycle of life. Yeah. What, what is considered a Dalit? So the Dalits. The Dalits are treated so horrendously. What
0: is that considered though? Would that be people including
1: outside of Hinduism or would be- um, they would so they wouldn't be they wouldn't view Dalits as as being Hindu in the sense that they're not allowed to practice the religion because they're less than human. And so the Dalits are they are marginalized outside of everything in society. And so um For example, um, World Vision used to work in India. World Vision and many of the Christian organizations have been kicked out of India now because India is moving towards becoming a Hindu nation. And so they're they're really pushing against Christianity. But I had a, a case study that I used to work with in my international community development class of a catfish farm in India where dalits were forced to work in the catfish farm and they would work 18 hours a day and the only food they got were the rotten chicken guts that they fed the the catfish they were not allowed to bathe they were not allowed to clean themselves they lived horrendously some dalits had never bathed in their life and they survived on rotten chicken and World Vision went in and freed them from that slavery. And because it was multi-generational, some of them had been in this, in this slavery for three, four generations. They didn't even know what it meant to be human because they'd never been treated humanely in their lifetime. How do they get chosen for that position? They're born into it. They had to start somewhere, though, right? I mean, yeah, I don't patients? know. I don't know. I don't know. That's a really good question. The, the answer that they always give is they're just born that. They're born into it. So, yeah. And that's what the caste system is. It's a modified form of slavery. It locks people into, into places in their lives and doesn't let them out. Depends on who you talk to. That's a really good question. If you, if you talk to somebody in India, they'll say, you have to be born a Hindu. And so they, they acknowledge that foreigners will come in and try to learn and practice their, their uh, belief system, but they're always, a, in a sense, an outsider. They'll embrace them, but they'll never be fully one of them if that makes sense. But yet at the same time, Hatha Yoga was brought to the United States as a way of desensitizing Americans to Hindu belief so that Hindu uh, transcendental meditation and some of the meditative practices of Hinduism have grown in in the United States because our sensitivity to what they practice has been diminished by the way they bring things in and just mildly inject them into our culture. I think in the states, it would be a, a modified form of both of those. I think I don't know many Hindus that are trying to draw people into their belief system, but they do practice it in a way that is hopefully appealing to the people around them. And if somebody wants, so when I go to the to the worship center in South Bend. Uh, my friends always say, "Well, just come worship with us for a while. Just come and experience it and see what it's all about." I don't know if that's his way of trying to get me, you know, to, or whether it's him just wanting me to understand what they believe a little better. But the the open invitation is always there. So, a guru is just a teacher. They're, they're a wise teacher that. Um, knows the path further than, than most people. And so, especially in India, gurus will gather people around them, and that's the way they, they make their living, is people will, will take care of them and give them things, and they become popular teachers. Yeah. Yes? The Sikh religion, is that part of religion? So Sikhism comes from... Uh, It's partially uh, Hindu. Sikhism is a combination of Islam and Hinduism. Uh, And so Sikhs originate from India, but Sikhs are not considered Hindu, if that makes sense. Um, It's something that's separate from Hinduism. There was a a young Hindu prince who was uh, tutored by an Islamic tutor, and He's the one who brought together uh, the belief system of Hinduism and Islam, which developed into Sikhism. And so Sikhs were severely persecuted for a long time in India. Um, but now they've just kind of integrated into, um, into Indian culture and society. So they leave them leave alone more now. But it's a, very, it's a separate religion. So the multiple arms would be um, their transcendence. So the fact that they can be here and now, but they can also reach into the past or reach into more of the eternal. The multiple faces have to do with, uh, again, their transcendence, their ability to see multiple spaces. Yeah. So thank you all so much. Appreciate it.
2: Yeah, Dr. Kent, thank you again for the time you spent with us. Um, I, again, we, we mentioned this at the beginning and, and last week as well. I hope that some of these things have been helpful for you. Um, just uh, last week on uh, one, of the, one of our evenings here during our gospel presentation, it was about to happen for Upward, um, I went, I drove past our, our park, and there was a man who I thought was in distress on uh, down by the playground. And so I stopped, I pulled in, I jumped out, and then I realized he was praying um, in very um, specific positions. and so I kind of held, held back he kind of put his hand up because he wanted to finish. Uh-huh. Um, obviously a Muslim at that point. And so then I got to jump into a conversation I met Ian. And I was able to use even just terminology and have a quick conversation. You know, you start talking through some of these things. And he cocks his head like, oh, you know, a little bit. I'm like, just about two weeks ago. So um, this is already, it has already made a difference uh, for me to be able to to communicate with people. And again, I'm reminded even in some of what you're talking about tonight as we talk about the term of historic, this historic piece that isn't here in any of this. I'm so grateful for a resurrection, amen. <laughs> um, everything amen. hinges off of that for our, for our faith, and I'm just, I'm yeah. grateful for that, so um, let me pray us out, and uh, we'll, we'll head our, our separate ways, Lord, again, thank you for a chance to be together, um, and to uh, be a part of this, uh, we've talked about the church today, what is the church, um, it's not a cruise ship, it's a rescue boat, we also understand that it's a university, we're learning, we're growing uh, we're understanding um, what is out in the world uh, that you created, uh, and then the evil that has come as a, as a twist to your good creation. And so, Lord, we need to be prepared. We need to know. We need to understand um, what it is that, that we face, how it is that we can love people well, um, and communicate the truth of the gospel. So thank you for that opportunity tonight. We ask that you would keep us safe on our way home uh, this evening. Just ask that you would bless our families. Um, pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.